you can find so much information if you look back through the records on the records that men were setting in the Olympics and what they were up to. But we do know that there were some girls, um, particularly in Sparta, who were um, who were very active, but it just wasn't something at the time that they wanted to write down for posterity, that they considered important. And so we've lost a lot of that history. Welcome to the Bar Ben Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by barbent.com. Today, I'm talking to writer and journalist Haley Shapley, the author of Strong Like Her. Published earlier in 2020, Strong Like Her is an examination and celebration of women's athleticism and strength throughout history, available wherever fine books are sold. Haley is passionate about strength and fitness, and her own athletic journey served as an inspiration to write about history's strongest women, something that's been all too frequently glossed over or ignored for hundreds and really thousands of years. We discussed the fascinating history behind women's strength sports from ancient times through to today, along with how women are continuing to push boundaries and change what is seen as societally mainstream when it comes to physical culture. I do want to take a second to say we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbed podcast in your app of choice. Now let's get to it. Haley, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really, really excited to chat with you. And we were talking about this before we hit record uh, because I don't get to talk to authors and journalists on this podcast that often. So it's neat to sit across from the table, the virtual table, uh, with, with someone who is passionate about covering this space from that perspective. But tell us a little bit about, we'll start with your, your book and tell us the title, the topic, and then we'll get a little bit more into your inspiration behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. I'm excited to be here. Um, I am the author of a book called Strong Like Her that came out earlier this year, and it's a cultural history about women and physical strength. So it starts in ancient times and it goes all the way through today, making a connection between strong women and the many ways that they have contributed to society at various points throughout history. Um, So some of the stops along the way include the Olympics in ancient Greece, Uh, the circus rings of the early 1900s, the sands of Muscle Beach in the 30s, the marathon courses of the 60s and the weight rooms of the 70s, and then, you know, the CrossFit gyms and Ninja Warrior courses of today. That was a a fantastic kind of voiceover clip. I could imagine a (laughs) montage of all these historical scenes as your voice kind of described them. We need to put that together. That's a YouTube video to promote the book. (laughs) That sounds great. Yeah, it's wonderful. There are so many vivid places that I got to research for the book. And so there are some really strong settings in it. So how long, how long did the book take from kind of idea to become you know, a, a published thing people could get their hands on? I'm curious about that timeline. Yeah, it took about three years from when I first got the idea to when it came out in stores. So um, I spent about a year writing it, um, but I was researching it all along um, in those early days. Now, you're, you're a professional journalist, so it's, you were, I assume, also working and writing features and other stories kind of on the side. This, when you say a year-long writing process or a three-year-long development process, you were also working your full-time 
career at the same time, right? Correct. Yes. I did take, um, you know, I was really laser focused on the book for about three months of that where I wasn't taking on any other projects or doing anything else. But yes, I was continuing to write for various publications during this time and otherwise, um, you know, engaged with my career. Journalists are oftentimes the, 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 best hustlers because they're always, it's always producing content. Some, a friend of mine once said, content doesn't produce itself. They were kind of joking, but it's, it's the truth. Where did you get the inspiration for the book? We can talk a little bit more about, about kind of your background and your athletic interests through that. But I'm curious, you know, three years ago or three years before the book came out, the idea that popped into your head, what, what inspired that or what, what sources of inspiration did you have? Because it's, it might not be just one thing I'm, I'm realizing. Yeah, it was definitely sort of a, it was a process to get to this idea. And I think it started about five years ago when I started strength training. Um, I had grown up playing a lot of sports and was always interested in athletics. But when I was younger, I never really wanted to be stronger. It just wasn't something that girls focused on in my immediate circle. So I joined a CrossFit gym um, and I started strength training. And I felt like my ideas about my body and what I was capable of were changing really quickly. And I also felt like I was seeing a lot of women in the public eye and on social media who were, um, you know, who were getting involved in strength training and really seeing a lot of benefits beyond physical. Uh, And so that kind of led me to signing up for a bodybuilding show. And when I signed up for the show, there was really interesting reaction from the people in my life. Some people were really interested in finding out what my training plan looked like and what the process of getting on stage would, would be and what my sparkly bikini would look like and, and all of that. And then there was um, you know, a group of people who said things like, don't get too big because men don't like that or how will you date? Or, you know, don't, don't hurt yourself. Don't lift too heavy. And I was interested in this idea that it feels like strength is more accessible to women than ever, but we still have these ideas about what activities are appropriate for women. So I went to the library. I wanted to read about this. I'm a journalist. I've always been interested in reading and books. And um, I was curious about the history of women and strength sports and how that's evolved over time. And I found that there just wasn't a lot of material in these books about women and their place in um, in strength. And I saw that as an opening to really chronicle the history and do something um, interesting by putting the spotlight on some of these trailblazers um, who have been around since the beginning of time, but who haven't always been recognized for their contributions. I love how you make that distinction because... Just because something hasn't been covered or because the information isn't super accessible doesn't mean that there isn't a rich and deep history of women in strength. I think sometimes it's it's all too easy to, and I fall into this trap too, to think about, because I'm a strength history nerd. I absolutely love reading about, oh, who invented this lift and why are we compete? You know, why is this, why is weightlifting the clean and jerk and the snatch? Why is it not this other thing? Things like that. And it's very easy to take a, a male-dominated or male-centric approach to that because m- much of the recorded history, prior to your book, much of the recorded history focused on male contributions. But it wasn't like there it wasn't like there haven't isn't like there haven't been women lifting heavy things and 
working on strength and pioneering a lot of the strength training techniques and lists we use today for thousands of years. Who were some of the first names or what were some of the first names? Who were some of the first women who kind of stood out to you early on in your research as these pioneers who you knew you were going to write about? Yeah, there were a lot. And touching on the point that you just made, when we look at ancient Greece, a lot of um, contributions from from girls and women have been overlooked because it's just not recorded. You can find so much information if you look back through the records on the records that men were setting in the Olympics and what they were up to. But we do know that there were some girls, um, particularly in Sparta, who were um, who were very active, but it just wasn't something at the time that they wanted to write down for posterity that they considered important. And so we've lost a lot of that history. Um, but as far as the important or you know influential women, I think one of the first ones is Katie Sandwina. She comes along. Um, she was born in the 1880s in the back of a circus wagon. She came from a, a circus family, and um, you know her mom had 15-inch biceps, and her dad was six-six. And um, there was a, a newspaper reporter who said his uh, ring, uh, his fingers were so big that his um, wedding ring was the size of a half dollar. So she was she was born in you know born to be strong for sure, and she was able to um, become a star over here in the U.S. um, in the circuses because she just had this appeal. She had had a, um, a very feminine appeal to people. And it was important that at the time that women's strength was put into that context of still being feminine. So a lot of the coverage of her um, talked about the fact that she was married, that she had kids. Um, She gave a lot of parenting advice and her womanly curves were always emphasized. Um, One journalist described her figure as like, um, her muscles as like mice rippling under a mattress. Um, And so it was (laughs) considered a good thing that her arms looked very ladylike in a ball gown and that she didn't have this sort of hard figure that was associated with masculinity. And yet she could lift, um, you know, she had overhead pressed 294 pounds or, or something along those lines, 129 kilos, I think. So she, she was incredibly strong and, um, and she, circus stars at the time had a lot of influence because they traveled around the country at a time when most people couldn't travel. They, um, they made their own money which a lot of women didn't have the opportunity to do. And at a time when there wasn't TV or the internet or even radio, when the circus came to town, everything shut down. So um, she was able to really captivate people all across the country and um, show that women could be incredibly strong. That that might be one of the most interesting descriptions of physique I've ever heard. Mice mice rippling under a mattress. And I'm if someone came up to me and told me that today, I wouldn't I wouldn't know whether to be offended or not. It's just one of those like, huh. Yes, sorry. It was mice playing in a mattress. Oh, I mice playing. It was just a little ripple under the skin, like mice playing in a mattress. Oh, sorry. okay, okay. That, that does contextualize. That makes more sense. That does contextualize it a little bit more. I was like, wow, that's great muscular control. Like, um, so yes, the idea though was that it wasn't, you know, it was just kind of peeking out from under, gotcha. underneath, and not something that was overt and in your face. Uh, gotcha. That that 
in the in the context of what you were describing, I think that that makes a, a little bit yeah, more sense. Sorry about that. I was going to go to talk to a trading partner of mine and compliment them soon, and really, really freak them out. Be like, "What? No, I'm absolutely not joking." <laughs> on that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, in more recent memory. I mean, that wasn't so so long ago. You know, being in the in the in the 20th century, kind of her rising to prominence. Let's talk about in the more recent uh, in more recent history about women in competitive strength sports, because that's not the only thing we cover at Barbend, right? But that is why Barbend was founded, to cover competitive strength sports. And we've always covered women's strength sports along with the men's, because that's been a thing for the past number of decades. But in your research, where did you start seeing the beginning of strength competition becoming a thing for women? Yeah, the big turning point for that was really the 1970s. There was a lot going on in that decade. Um, The passage of Title IX was the biggest, which um, allowed girls and women in educational institutions to have equal opportunity to play sports. Um, You know, we see the marathon uh, that women can can run the Boston Marathon for the first time. We see the battle of the sexes between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. So we see a lot happening during this decade. And one of the things we see happening is women making their way into a weight room and starting to train with the intention of competing. Um, in the early days, many of them had to compete against men. Many of them were um, barred from competition. But toward the end of the decade, um, there there start to be powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting competitions for women and uh, bodybuilding as well. I've had the the good fortune of talking to a few strength sports historians, um, and you know it's a relatively small community. And I'm sure that we we've we've kind of talked to some of the same people, but the 1970s were such a formative decade for kind of all of strength. That's when powerlifting kind of came into its own. That's when weightlifting was codified as just the two lifts. Bodybuilding kind of became a thing because before that. Strength athletes were kind of bouncing around between sports and they weren't necessarily specializing. Bodybuilders were doing powerlifting. Uh, Tommy Kona, one of the great American weightlifters, was kind of bodybuilding and weightlifting, which we wouldn't even really fathom today. So it seemed to be like a pretty interesting time for a lot of for strength sports in general and, and obviously women's contributions to those. Fast forward to the 80s and 90s. What are some other inflection points that came up in your research that maybe you highlighted in the book regarding women in strength training, strength sports, et cetera? Yeah, you know, I don't cover um, the 90s very much in the book. In the 80s, I touch on a bit in bodybuilding. That's when we see there's a lot of public interest in women's bodybuilding. Um, at first, it was seen as, as very strange for women to be competing in this, to be up on stage, showing their muscles, that people were, were confused by that. But um, in the 80s, it became popular for women to be fit. Um, that body type kind of came into vogue and, um, and people started to really appreciate um, what women, how women were able to sculpt their bodies and to appreciate the training that they put into that. So one of the women I um, profile in the book, Elaine Craig, was an early uh, bodybuilding competitor who still is very active in hosting bodybuilding competitions. And this was kind of, um, this era was when she and her contemporaries were um, really being written about quite a bit in the media. And there was a, a lot of fascination there, but it did go up and down as um, as the figures started to get bigger, then people started to kind of turn away from that more. So there was kind of a line that was crossed and then it was considered 
not, um, you know, not a great activity anymore. So that is kind of what happened in the eighties. What were some of the resources that you utilized in preparing for this book, even before, you know, the actual final drafting process began? I'm, I'm very curious about that. I have a huge resource list in the back for anyone who's a geek and who's interested <laughs> in that. It is pages and pages long. I read so many books and I interviewed about 40 people for this. I went down to the University of Texas to the Stark Center, which is a research library run by Jan Todd, who's featured in the book. Anyone who is a strength sports nerd will know her as um, an absolutely amazing power lifter who did start in the 70s. I think her first competition was in 75. and. Um, uh, so that was a, a great resource for me. I also, um, I took a couple of trips um, and watched some some strength sports up close uh, as well. So uh, it was mostly just a lot of a lot of reading um, because while this hasn't been covered in a comprehensive matter, there have been uh, a, a lot of things written about individual athletes, um, and there's been a, a bit in academia written uh, about it as well. And I wanted to translate that for a mainstream audience. So I spent a lot of time kind of reading about this, um, the minutia of some of these um, stories and really trying to pull out the um, most interesting aspects that people who have no background in strength sports and people who, you know, know their deadlift PR alike would both be interested in. Yeah, it, it, pulling out some of these narrative threads that can capture an audience, it's always the tough part. The fortunate thing is there are a lot of really interesting people in strength who do things for a lot of really sometimes kooky reasons. We look back and we call them crazy in hindsight. Maybe they were crazy at the time, not so crazy in, in hindsight. Did anything, did any stories that you highlighted or researched for the book or, or any uh, interviews that you conducted stand out to you as particularly surprising? Were there any moments where you were just kind of, hey, that's not what I was expecting to find here or to hear here? Wow, that's a good question. I mean, there were a lot of things that surprised me and didn't. Um, like I interviewed Catherine Switzer for the book, who was um, an early marathon runner. And uh, I was surprised to find that in the 1960s, people still believed that women, women weren't capable of running that distance, that their uteruses would fall out, that they would start to grow facial hair, um, which is <laughs> wild to think about today because running is so, uh, you know, it's pretty non-controversial as far as um, an activity that many people can enjoy. Um, so I, I ran into things like that all the time where women were just told these wild things about what would happen to them if they participated in different sports. Uh, there was a book in the late 1800s that said even taking a walk was just too much strain on a woman and that lying in a hammock was the best way to, um, you know, get, get some fitness in, which I love lying in a hammock, but I'm not sure that that is a fitness activity. So, um, it's, it's interesting just how pervasive these myths are about um, what women are capable of. So that's probably what surprised me the most. But there are a lot of little interesting details sprinkled throughout um, about, about the different stories. Um, it's hard to think of all of them right now, but there are a lot of little nuggets in there. I'm trying to think of what my coach's reaction would be if I told them I, I was lying. I 
lay down in a hammock for a training session. I'm just trying to figure. I'm just trying to figure out what the response would be there. Not positive. It's a great, it's a great rest uh, rest day activity for sure. But you know, back then people thought that um, energy was not a renewable resource. That once it was gone, you couldn't get it back. So the idea was that women shouldn't. Um, shouldn't risk using their energy on something that wasn't being a wife or a mother. Um, and walking around the block didn't fit that criteria. So, um, you know, even walking up and down stairs was discouraged in, in something I read. Uh, so it's just really interesting how our thinking has evolved, but we still do have some holdovers from, um, from that kind of thought. What, did this research and writing process do to impact, if at all, your personal relationship with strength training and strength sports? You, you're a lifelong athlete. You're an active CrossFitter. You, you trained for and competed in bodybuilding, which, by the way, that's like going from zero to a hundred because that's a complete what what a complete lifestyle uh, refresh you need to do if you take that seriously. It's every every waking moment, every sleeping moment, everything you eat. How did this research and book process um, change you know, how you envision yourself as, a, as an athlete and in your relationship with strength? That's a great question. And yes, bodybuilding is a complete lifestyle makeover, which I try, I try to explain to people whenever they ask me about it. It's different than training for something else where you focus while you're training on that and then the rest of the time you have to yourself. But bodybuilding is like a 24-7 kind of thing. As far as my own relationship with strength training, I think for one thing, it just made me appreciate the pioneers even more than I already did. I was always someone, even when I was a kid, I was really interested in Title IX. I researched it. I remember when I was in elementary school. And um, it's interesting when I talk to younger people now, a lot of them don't know about it because they have never grown up in a world that didn't have sports for girls. Um, But, you know, my uh, my parents and grandparents did grow up in a world where it was at least a little bit harder to, um, to access. So I just, I have a lot of appreciation for the women who, who blazed these trails for us to be able to compete and who showed that women can compete at a high level. I know you had Karen Marshall on the podcast recently, who was an incredible weightlifter, um, in the seventies and eighties. And, um, you know, she was the first woman to press overhead 300 pounds. And I think that's, um, you know, we needed, we needed those women to, um, to be the first to show that it could be done and look at what women are doing now. It's incredible. So I gained a lot of appreciation and I also just kind of continue to evolve in my thinking about what I can do and, um, what I might like to try and just how I, view myself, I guess. Um, that's been the biggest thing that I've learned from strength training is that I am capable of more than I would have ever thought when I was younger. What are some barriers that you think we're, we're kind of seeing start to fall down when it comes or be broken down when it comes to women in strength training, strength sports, or, or athletics? What are some more recent or contemporary examples of that? Well, I think we're seeing um, more respect given to women. I think that we're still fighting for equal pay, you know, equal prizes in, um, 
in sports in general. Um, I talk, and this isn't strength sports specific, but, you know, I talk about the U.S. women's uh, soccer team and, and the struggles they've had to earn equal pay, even though they do generate more revenue than the men's team at this point in time, and they're still not paid in a way that they feel is equitable. Um, so I think with sponsorships and salaries and things, we still have a way to go. Um, I do think CrossFit is setting a great example because from the very beginning, the prizes offered at the CrossFit Games have been equal for men and women. And I think that's huge. I saw a conversation about this recently after um, the 2020 CrossFit Games where um, people were talking about what impact that has had um, on the sport. And I think that it has just set the stage from the beginning that that both men and women are equally valued. And, and you see that participation is about 50-50. And um, I make the argument, and not everyone agrees, that if it had started out with men receiving more, that we wouldn't see as many women at the top level that we do today. I think um, that's what's missing from a lot of sports that we have now is that we've just never set the expectation that women are just as capable and that they're just as fun and entertaining to watch um, and that their skill set is just as valued. And so we see these disparities in how the sports are viewed. But because this one started off on equal footing, um, I think we get a better result. And it, I think it's also worth noting that it might be easy for us to think, oh, CrossFit's relatively new. Of course, they started off on equal footing. But the first CrossFit Games was only seven years after the Sydney Olympics, which was the first Olympic Games where women could compete in weightlifting. So it, this isn't ancient history. This is very much in, and this is just to, to date us, this is in our lifetimes very, very much. Some of our younger listeners, it, it might not be. That's wild uh, to think about, that there could be people listening who were born after that, but that's very true, yes. Uh, we have to keep this a little bit family-friendly because we do have, <laughs> we do have, you know, we do have some folks uh, who, are, who are younger strength athletes who I know listen to this podcast, not to belittle their accomplishments. They're, not at all. Um, but, you know, they, they don't really remember the 90s, and sometimes my references <laughs> fall a little bit flat. Um, but all that to say, you know, a lot of these things are in very recent memory. We tell people, we had Karin, Dr. Karin Marshall on, one of the, my favorite conversations we've had recently on the Barbed Podcast. Um, and, you know, she never got to compete at the Olympic level, even though she was arguably, you know, the top weightlifter in her bodyweight category for a number of years internationally, because it wasn't until 2000. That seems so recent. And weightlifting had a hundred year history at the Olympics before women were even invited to invited to lift and i find that i find that so fascinating are there any other examples that have came up in your book or the research for the book that surprised you for kind of you know how recently women were given a seat at the table or um anything beyond kind of differences in pay scale where it's surprising that women still aren't receiving equal recognition or aren't allowed to compete in the same way one example that I think is really interesting that I wasn't able to include in the book is in ski jumping, which is a very niche sport, but women weren't allowed to compete in it until 2014, which is very, very recent. Probably everyone listening was alive at that time. And I mean, we, would, we would hope so. We would hope so. Kids, if you, <laughs> you, if you, know, you might have some five-year-old uh, listeners, um, but 
women, so women first got to compete in, at the Olympics in 2014, and there was a lot of resistance to that within the ski jumping community. And in this um, millennium, there was a ski jumping official who said that it wasn't safe for women because their uteruses might burst. Um, there was another official who said that women just shouldn't be participating because they had more important priorities like taking care of hearth and home. And it's, it's an interesting example because in ski jumping, there's not a very big difference between men and women and their um, achievements. You know, you actually want to be light in the air. You want to be smaller. Women in general tend to be lighter and smaller. So there's not a big gap in performance. And I think when there's not a big gap in performance, then you see people kind of hanging on even more tightly to um, wanting to keep certain people out of, of competing. So that was one I didn't get a chance to include, but kind of blew my mind because it's so recent. That, that is, that is remarkable. I had, I, if you would ask me to guess what year, like, and, and even told me it would, the answer would surprise me. I would have been like, I don't know, 1998. 1994 what was the, the Nagano Olympics or something like that, but 2014, that is, um, that's, that's remarkable. I appreciate you, appreciate you sharing that, even though it's outside of the context of strength athletics, because I think it's important to paint a picture about kind of the sports world in general and how that impacts these different niches everyone kind of lives and operates in. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think strength sports, one thing is they're, they're infiltrating all sports now. So it's not just strength athletes who are now doing clean and jerks and who are um, benching and, and some of these other things. Like most of the women I interviewed in the book who are softball players or soccer players or whatever, they have a very, um, dedicated strength regimen that they follow. So I think that is one big change that we've seen recently is that this isn't something that just strength athletes are doing now. Strength training is part of almost every athlete's uh, regimen. And you didn't see that in earlier decades, um, for women at least. You didn't see going into the weight room if you were um, a swimmer. That wasn't something that you necessarily did, and, and now you do. I mean, even in America, especially in America, um, it's a little bit different depending on kind of the, the sports structures in different countries. But many of the great strength athletes or many of our elite strength athletes in the U.S., they don't start as strength athletes. They start in a different sport, maybe a team sport or something, and they realize they enjoy the strength training maybe more than their original sport or they're just really good at it, right? So they might be clean and jerking or deadlifting to train for their sport and suddenly someone's like, wait a minute. If you just did that, you'd be pretty darn good at it. So it does kind of cycle back and, and forth. Strength training cycles into the other sports, and also those sports become feeders and expose people to these lifts, and then eventually they learn they can compete, which surprises some people still. But Yeah, absolutely. And there's just more opportunity now, more exposure to, to that. I mean, I could not have told you what a clean and jerk was in the 1990s, but now I can do them. So, <laughs> but now you're, you're actively, you're going to do some later today. So that, there you go. Um, I, I think that's also, I mean, it, it's, it's very, it's been very interesting and we could, that's a separate podcast episode about how the growth of CrossFit has influenced the, these, the terms that people know and the nomenclature people know about strength training. Um, but we could, we could dive into that for, for hours, I'm sure. Uh, where is the best place for people to, well, I'm going to ask two questions. Uh, what's the best place for people to follow the work you're doing? That's kind of the first question. 
Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Haley Shapley or my website, HaleyShapley.com. Those are the most, uh, that's where I, I'm at the most often. And just to give folks uh, one more plug for the book, what's the book called? Where can they find it? And uh, you know, any, any other part of the elevator pitch that we haven't, that we haven't touched on uh, in this recording? Yeah. So Strong Like Her is available wherever books are sold. You can find it online. You can order it from an indie bookseller, which is a great thing to do right now to support any um, shops that have been hurt by the pandemic. Um, And then the other thing I should mention is that it's a very giftable book. It's um, I teamed up with a photographer to shoot 23 modern day athletes. So there are very beautiful photos of athletes from a wide array of um, sports and they cover different body types and geographic locations and they all have different stories. So, you know, there's, um, there's a weightlifter in there, there's a strong woman, um, there's a powerlifter. So you'll see a lot of athletes who um, you might recognize and, and ones whose stories will be new to you, but um, those are kind of intermingled with the the chapters that cover the history, um, but it's just a, a nice overall package, and it is something that I've been getting great feedback on from men and women alike, and from people who have interest in history and who don't, and as I mentioned before, from people who are already um, enveloped in the strength world and those who really don't know much about it at all. So I did try to make it really accessible. And, um, you know, I hope that people will come away from it with a better understanding of how strength sports have um, intersected with some cultural movements that we've seen um, over time. It's, it's about so much more than how much you can lift. Um, it really affects the other aspects of, um, of your life and of your general well-being. So it's, um, it highlights how women have made these contributions. Strong women have made contributions in ways that we often don't learn about. Awesome. Haley, thank you so much for your time and for telling us more about uh, your book. Uh, I would encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy and this podcast will come out just in time for the holidays. So pick up a copy for yourself, maybe gift one or two and uh, very, very much appreciate you diving in there. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. 